So, morning church, my name is Grace Makua. For those of you that don't know me, I'm married to Tabao Makua Odeis. Um, and we've been married for almost five years, celebrating our fifth wedding anniversary in March. Um, I am one of three children, I am the middle child. Um, so yes, I do have middle child syndrome. Um, sometimes I, I question myself, who is the eldest here? Is it me? I don't think so. And sometimes I wish, oh, I really wish I was the youngest. Um, I'm an accountant by profession. And what was your sort of reaction to when you found out that we were going to do this, this series, What's Your Story? And how has it been working out for you so far? So um, when I heard that we're starting this new series, I was very happy because um, as some of you might remember, we received a survey towards the end of last year about, um, you know, what do you think we should do and where do you, what would you like to see more of in the church? And one of the things that I mentioned there was um, we should really get to know our Wellspring community better. So get to know each other better, not on like a superficial level. So I was very excited about um, the series, yeah. And you, last week was the first yes. week where we kind of spiced up all the life groups, and so how was that? Um, it was interesting. Um, I'm in a life group that likes to eat good food, <laughs> so I counted myself really privileged to be in that group. <laughs> but um, yes, and it got me questioning so, what's your story actually? Um, and that was Sunday when Renee shared last week and I was like prompted, but what is your story? And um, Wednesday I got a voice note from Justine and um, she asked if you would like to share. I'm like, God, I'm still busy, like, fishing, like, you know, figuring this out for myself and writing it down. I'm like only two days in, I don't know anything yet. Um, so yeah, what a way for God to put you on the spot, be careful what you ask for. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> and why do you think that it's um, it's so difficult for us to share um, our stories? So for me, why it's difficult for me to share my story, I think um, I always hear lots of other people's stories and how they came to faith. And I think I didn't have a story like that. There was no big moment one particular big moment in my life. So my story is dull and, and boring, that's what I thought. And then also um, there's the, the part of when you share your story, you, you're vulnerable, right, to people. And um, you, you fear being judged as well. So, yeah. So, so then we want to say thank you very much for, for being brave today. And yeah, I'm just gonna let you Take it away and yeah, tell us a little bit about your story. Thank you. So like Karen said, uh, there is a few pages. So please bear with me, guys. I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I can. Um, and also just um, putting it out there, I'm a ball of emotions since worship practice this morning. For some reason, Justine thought it was a good idea. Oh, you're on worship. Good idea for you to share your story on Sunday because you're all going to be in church. <laughs> Okay, so please bear with me. I will be reading um, so that I don't forget anything. Okay. So here I am trying to put pen to paper. To be honest, it's more like staring at a piece of paper and lots of thinking. Where does my story even begin? What would be considered as the beginning? 
I sit and I'm busy working my way backward. Then Jeremiah 1 verse 5 popped into my mind. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. So that is where my story starts, before I was even born. This part of my story is not one I share often and not one that many know. My mother's mother is a white lady who was born on a farm in Mama's Bay. Her husband was a black Zimbabwean man who was looking to start a new life in South Africa. My great-grandparents weren't happy about the daughter's decision to marry not just a black man, but a refugee from Zim. So she was immediately shunned and exiled from her family. My father's mother was a black lady who worked as a domestic for a white family. He never had a relationship with his mother because after she gave birth, she dropped him off at her brother's house and she never saw him again. As this would affect her job. My daddy grew up with his cousins and that was the only siblings he knew. Times were hard and he wasn't treated the best and often had to fend for himself. His uncle was a teacher and my father was determined to become someone special. He read all the books he could find and um, it was later in his early 20s that he got a glimpse of who his father was. At the time, he was working at Pickers, now known as Pick and Pay, um, and a white man came looking for him and he wanted to see Thomas Dean. My father being shocked that what white man came into the store looking for him, um, he saw the man and the man just looked at him. Thereafter, he would come to the store almost every week and would just watch my father from a distance. Soon the visits stopped. My mother grew up in a noble park as this was the middle ground for a white lady and a black man. This was where they were both accepted, well, to a certain degree. My grandmother was to white and my grandfather to black. My grandfather died when my mom was just 13 years old and my grandmother had to fend for her and her five children at the time. Years later, my parents met each other and decided that they would get married. My mom being mixed race and my dad, who identified as black, wanted to build a future together. So there I am, years later, growing up in Malunga Park, Guguletu, Gooks, as they know it. Um, and like, um, and like, I was often mocked by other black kids in the area or in other black areas. Oh, you live in Jujuletois. <laughs> in the black community, Malunga Park was considered to be for the black elites. This is where you would find many of the early day uh, black activists and politicians. Malunga Park was my Malunga Park was the first black community where people could um, 
actually buy their own property for the first time. My parents paid 16,000 Rand for their property. Years later, having moved to Berkeley, and on the new title deed that the pre from the previous owners, we had seen that they had paid just 14,000 for their house and a few years after my parents had purchased these. I must say that I lived a very privileged life and we never lacked anything. My mother had her own two hair salons, one in Weinberg and one in Plumstead. My father was in management positions at Pick and Pay. I attended an ex-Model C Catholic school in Wittemunger. As part of my subjects, religious education was one of them. This was where my interest in the Bible first grew. We were taught to pray to Mother Mary so that she could intercede for us with God. This was very different to what I was taught on a Sunday in Sunday school in my very colored and charismatic church in Hanover Park. I then proceeded to argue with my teacher, who was a nun, <laughs> telling her that Jesus intercedes for us as he sits on the right hand side of the Father. So where does Mary fit into all of this? My mother and father was called in um, and they had to give me a stern talking to. When it was time for me to go to high school, my father had decided that the next best step would be for me to go to Springfield Convent High. At that point, I was all nunned out and I thought that my dad wanted me to be a nun too. <laughs> After many deliberations, I managed to convince him that Livingston was the best school as they specialized in maths and science. I knew where to get my father. Uh, he loved books so much and education was a very like a big thing to him. So from a Catholic school to a predominantly Muslim school I go. I did fine art as a subject from grade 8 and this was the classroom that seemed to be the platform where my faith was challenged. I truly believe that my Muslim friends loved me and they believed that it was their duty to save me from the wrong path I was on. For the next five years my faith was challenged almost every day and my evenings my evening ride home consisted of me telling my mom about Niyaz and his Muslim brothers. I didn't like not having an answer, so this encouraged me to read my Bible often, as I was often posed with questions that a young teenager couldn't possibly know the answers to. After I, after I tired of the South privilege, I decided to go north for university. I lived in a race called Metanoia. In Christian theology, Metanoia is commonly understood as a transformative change of art. This was a new race and it was only in its second year of existence. Little did I know that this was where my heart would be changed. This was the most multiracial and diverse race on campus. For the next couple of years, this is where God broke down the barriers and walls I never knew existed. All my preconceived ideas of who people were 
and my own prejudice against people who didn't identify as me. I came to realize that we are all just people created in his image and that none of us are without sin and that we are all saved by grace. In Rosal, um, I was invited to a home cell group in Rez by a church that I will not name. <laughs> and in home cell, we were taught to stay away from the unholy people. For the first time, this is where I saw how we as Christians are so judgy. We didn't make it easy for people to come in. We judged harshly. I made it my mission to step out into those ungodly and unholy places. I made friends with gays, lesbians, transgender, and I went clubbing. Not because I was high on drugs or completely intoxicated, but because I enjoyed dancing. Why can't we just dance for the sake of dancing? These friends taught me so much about Christians through their lens. It was at varsity that I met Tabs. <laughs> Who was this guy that was always laughing and had others in stitches around him all the time? Only months later, I learned that his full name was actually Tabang. That left me confused as I never heard him speak his native tongue and hardly ever heard him speak English. We became great friends and our love story didn't start there. It was only six years later that we had started dating romantically. Because we had the same group of friends, um, I made him promise that we will date for a period of six months in secret to see if this is actually working. <laughs> Fast track to the future, we get married and it's a beautiful ceremony where two cultures collide. We had very different upbringings and a very different way of thinking and reasoning. Tabang has taught me to loosen up, to have more fun and to laugh often. He has told me that it's okay not to have a plan for everything and that everything uh, and that every new oh, and that every now and again it's okay just to go with the flow. Our marriage hasn't been all rosy and the scripture iron sharpens iron. Lloyd, where are you? We spoke about this this morning. Iron sharpens iron has become very real to me. I remember asking God to teach me patience because this was something that I struggled with a lot. Well, now I have a lifetime of practicing love is patient, love is love. He's always taught me, he has also taught me that my way is not the only way and that there is another way. We remind each other daily to remain humble and that what we have is not ours. We are blessed to be a blessing to others. In an attempt to wrap up my story, here it goes. I am me. I am not who you expect me to be. I am a complex being with many facets. 
I cannot be put in a box. I go against the grain and step out into spaces deemed to be taboo. My life experiences have given me the ability to be relatable to both what the world deems to be the marginalized and the esteemed. I am nothing without Christ. I am because of Christ. I am a mere vessel being used for His glory and waiting expectantly for how, of the rest, for how the rest of my story will unfold. I know that I'm meant to be here and, that I'm, and I know that I am chosen. Thank you. Thank you, Grace. That was amazing. I think you could write a book. Um, so beautifully written. And thank you for sharing. So vulnerable. Um, I'm going to release the youth <laughs> um, to their program, and um, Brandon is going to be sharing with us today. Good morning, everybody. It's so good to see everyone here. Welcome to our visitors. It's great to have you with us. I'm trying to keep my watch so that my wife is not here, you see, so I am my own timekeeper, which I feel sorry for you, but so it's so good to be in the middle of this series. Um, I was sitting there with all my notes on my computer because I wasn't home, and then Steve says, "Don't take your computer." So, but I've got my phone already. So it's so good to to be able to share this, and I think in many ways, last week we heard from Brett about the power of story. Didn't your hearts resonate as he spoke about? Our stories are so powerful. Um, we are wired for story, right? And so much we want to hear. I think maybe that's why we tend to binge watch a bit of Netflix. or Because you want to know the, the problem, the, the messy middle, and then the resolution at the end, right? That's the story. And I think storytelling has for, for generations, and I mean thousands of years, been an effective means of connecting between people, of passing on knowledge, and, and here we are. We are sitting here and I'm looking out over this crowd and I'm seeing, wow, I may as well almost close in prayer because Grace said it all, so I know I prayed 12 last week after a day. And, uh, <laughs> because almost all the elements that I'm going to share um, came up. Um, but, but as I look out over this yeah, all of you sitting here in the seats. I mean, there's a story. There's a story in every seat, right? And um, my second slide, Renee, I'm going to use as just a bit of a transition. I have come across the work of a sociologist a few years ago. And in preparing for this message, I... No, no, the second one. So, of course, you can read all of that now. <laughs> this one, there we go. Okay, this is a bit easier on the eyes, Lucy. So, um, the work of the sociologist Brené Brown really resonates, can you all see that? Really resonates as truth. You know, when I read it, it resonated. When you come across something and you just feel like, wait a minute, I need to stop and just pay attention because there's something here. And 
And she says something really powerful because last week we looked at the power of story, which is a human kind of experience, story being yeah, part of who we are as human beings. Doesn't matter where you come from, in Oval Park, Strandfontein, um, Rondebosch, whatever, whatever, you know. The power of story and but there's another there's another layer. Grace said so beautifully that she's complex. Her story is complex. It's not just simple. It's not two-dimensional. There's like so many facets to it. And so if you just see Grace in the street, like there's no ways that you would think about that. And yet so many times we encounter each other on that level and and we make up our own story, don't we? And I'm so I'm so guilty of that, and, and the work here reminded me of that. And she says, when we deny our stories, they define us. Then we must hustle for worthiness and for belonging and love. Then we're always hustling. We're always coming to church and having to put on that face. You know that face? Hey, I'm well. Praise the Lord, God is good. Am I, am I just talking about me? <laughs> I mean, we all know that, right? <clears throat> Meanwhile, something really significant is happening in our marriages, in our families, maybe just in our workplace. We're going through a really tough time, but, but we need to pitch up as these happy, happy people. So that when people look at us, it's like, wow, gee was actually... I feel so like inadequate in this moment because I look at Mel and I think, gee, well, she's got all together. <laughs> and like, here's me. And so I better smile and say, everything's fine. And then she says, when we own our stories, we get to write the ending. And she doesn't write from a Christian perspective, but there's truth there. And I think from a Christian perspective, if we, if we find ourselves in the story of God, then there is an ending. Do, do you understand that? It doesn't matter how messy our middle is, there is an ending. And it's, it's been won by Jesus Christ. And so, as I was preparing this, you'll notice that I need, I have a need for my water, right? I wish it could be closer to me. And you may even know that you may even notice the water shaking a bit <laughs> as I drink it, but but that's part of my story. And so if I share my story with you, maybe you'll get to hear a bit of that. But before we move into the portion of scripture that I felt God lay on my heart for this week as part of our series where we get to own our stories. So we spoke about, as an external, the power of stories. Now it comes home. It comes home to us. We need to own our stories. And so let us pray and ask God to bless our time as we just delve into his word. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who loves us. You are the God who cares. You are the God who created us. And Father, there's no part of our lives that is hidden from you. And there's nothing that we could ever do that will separate us from your love, Father God. 
Father, sometimes that's difficult to understand, but Lord, we thank you that as we gather in your presence, that there's acceptance here. There's an opportunity for belonging here. There's, a, there's an opportunity to be seen. And with the gentleness of the love of Christ, to be embraced. And so Lord, we pray that you bless our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. A portion of scripture, if you have your Bibles with you, is from the book of Mark, chapter 5, from verse 25 to 34. So this is the story of the woman with the issue of, of blood. And she had this problem, right, which we'll read about. And I'd like to just read the passage and then give some context as we look into the Word of God. And so Jesus was on his way, remember, Jesus was on his way to heal um, Jairus' daughter who was dying. And on his way there, what happens is there's an encounter. So it's kind of a sandwich story. There's Jairus' daughter, Jesus is on his way, then there's like a story that fits in the middle, and then there's, a, then there's the resolution of Jairus' daughter's story. But I just want to focus on that middle bit. And it says, and a woman was there... <coughs> who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she had been freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, and his disciples answered, And yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. That's a story we have heard many times over, right? But I, I felt drawn to this story as I thought about what is the significance for us at Wellspring in owning our stories and then in that ownership of our story showing up showing up in each other's presence with our stories. And if we are to understand this woman, there are multiple layers, as Grace has set us up, with the, that multifaceted components to her story. If we look at her, we see that she, she, was, she lived in the Middle East. And at the time that this was written, there was, the culture was that of an honor-shame culture. Right? It's not the same as today. So today we'll speak about self-esteem. You can feel better about yourself just by the way you think of yourself. This was like, this could not be further from the truth in that context. Because in that context, your esteem or your worthiness, and I think that's a good word, your worthiness was measured by a few factors and that included things like your standing in society, um, your, your wealth, your education, your uh, rhetorical skill, your family pedigree, and your political connections. That was what determined 
your importance. And so Renee, that other slide that no one can read, but I'll talk us through that. But if we if we look at this woman's story, she was in the Middle East, she was she was in the, the nation of, of Israel. And, and I think what's important to understand about Israel at this point when Jesus was on earth is that Israel had been through so much as a nation for thousands, yeah, for hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years or more, this had been a nation who had been oppressed. They had been oppressed by successive powers that came across um, through, throughout history, right? So, so we'll see thousands, a thousand years uh, before this time, there were the Egyptians and they were slaves. And then God brings them out of Egypt and they need to identify who they are. They need to find their identity in God. And that's difficult because remember the moment Moses goes up the mountain, they're starting to worship a golden calf. They, they, they're confused about who they are. And God spent, he allows him to spend 40 years in the wilderness because you need to understand who you are. You are my people. I have called you. You are no longer slaves. And there's a song to that effect that really touches me every time I hear that. Then we think about the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks. And then in this time of Jesus, the Roman Empire who was oppressing the people. So then you must understand also that she probably belonged to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, Judah or Benjamin, the, the culture at the time, there was a prevailing culture. She belonged to a certain family. She was of a certain gender. And then you come to, this, to the person. And so I think that, that is the multi kind of faceted nature of all of us. And so I'll allude to this a bit later when I, when I reflect on what does this mean for us. And so this woman would have lived in this ancient context and been subject to the culture of the day, this honor-shame culture. And as we read the story, the Bible says she suffered for 12 years. And I mean, you may say, okay, why was she suffering for 12 years? You know, like the, the act of this woman's menstrual cycle being almost continuous for 12 years meant... In the Jewish law, she would have been considered unclean. So remember, she may have been considered unclean maybe for the period of that time, um, maybe seven days, I think it was. But imagine non-stop, 12 years. She couldn't go to the, 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 the synagogue to, to worship. She couldn't be in contact with other people. You know why? Because when she was and she even touched them, she contaminated them such that they then were unclean. And so people would have shunned her. And so part of our human nature is that we are wired for connection, isn't it? I mean, do you remember the lockdown when we couldn't see family and friends? That was tough, right? Life happened and we couldn't be there. And so, and so for this woman, she was absolutely ostracized on the outside of society. And by the time we meet her in this passage, she's desperate. She spent all she had. She's alone. It's dark. There's no signs of hope. She spent all of She's seen all the doctor's money could buy and no one could help her. And I think in society, what you had was, you must understand the context when she lived. This is power and privilege on, the, on this axis. 
So, so who had the power and the privilege? The ruler, and this was number of people of the day, right? So the ruler, that was Caesar, right? See, whoever happened to be Caesar at the time. The, the Roman ruler, he had the most power and privilege, such that even he was thought to be God. Then you have the governing class, and then this is the governing class coming down here, and that's the power and privilege day, that middle bit. Then you have the priests. Ah, there we go. Thanks, Rene. The priests. And, and remember, the priests played a bit of a game, right? They were guarding the Jewish or, or, or the, the, the Jewish religion, but they were also making sure that they had at least enough power and privilege to live a life that was comfortable at the time. Then you had merchants, day laborers and slaves, where probably most of the disciples kind of fit in um, the artisans, the unclean, and right at the bottom you had a group called the Expendables. There's a movie by that name, but that was not it. <laughs> but these ones were considered really expendable. Like if, if these guys just kind of disappeared, we wouldn't even miss them. So, so this would be the widows and the orphans, those who couldn't contribute to this power and privilege because they weren't working, they weren't contributing financially, the women and the orphans, the, yeah, the, the physically handicapped who couldn't work in that, and so they would occupy this, this rung here, and, and this woman was, was right at this line because of her condition. And where does where does God locate himself when he decides to enter human reality? Just need to do a time check. God locates himself. Up there? No ways. God locates himself here. Jesus locates himself right at the bottom of the run and he lives there. So something that Brene Brown says about shame which is i'm sure was this woman's reality is that shame thrives on three things so she says that if you put shame in a petri dish what causes shame to thrive and grow exponentially is secrecy silence and judgment what is the antidote to shame that sees it shrivel die and just get wiped out that's empathy and so Brett shared something um, last week he said that what is the greatest commandment when Jesus was asked love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself and there's empathy there there's empathy in loving your neighbor in encountering your neighbor and so I, if we look at, at what happens to this woman when she comes to Jesus, we see that she's so desperate, she thinks, let me just touch the, the edge of his cloak and I'll be healed. And it happens, it happens, right? She pushes through the crowd, making everyone unclean, you know? Like, you know that? Like, just like pushing through, touching everyone, risking the, the people's anger, and she touches Jesus' cloak and she feels in her body that she's been freed physically. So that's great, right? And then she thinks, now I just need to get away because I've got my healing, I'm happy. But Jesus doesn't, it doesn't just 
He doesn't just allow power to go out and then think, okay, that's good, someone's got healed, I can move on. He stops. Jesus stops and he says, power has gone out from me. And then the disciples say, but there's so many people. And he knows and he says, someone has touched me. And I think here is something very significant for us to understand. If we read this, if you just give me some time to drink some water. (coughs) Um, Something very significant happens in this moment. She comes, and I think that's in verse. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear. You can imagine why she was so fearful of being found out. She had gone against all the laws. She had, she had kind of broken every rule in, in that religious structure by being in public in the first place and then by contaminating people and not just contaminating people, she contaminated the man of God, the prophet. I don't know who she thought Jesus was, but she contaminated him. And he was on his way to perform a healing, right? And so, and so the law of the day said that if a priest is unclean, for that day until sunset, he needed to go and do a ritual cleansing of himself. Because he would not be fit to stand in the sanctuary of God. And so, and so Jesus identifies this woman. And, and in that moment... What does he do? What is his demeanor towards her? Does he chastise her and say, why are you not sequestered somewhere in your room? Quite the opposite. We see Jesus call her daughter. It's a term of endearment. Do you know that there's only this once that that term is used by Jesus? Only this once. With this woman who's suffering from shame, who's at the bottom of the rung of society, And Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. He puts straight something in her heart and her mind. She thought somehow, magically, if she just touched the cloak. So imagine she had gotten away. She would have touched the cloak, been healed, gotten away, think, wow, I'm so glad. But she would have had this guilt of saying, I made all these people unclean. I made Jesus unclean. And and there's somehow this magic happened and, and I'm... But Jesus sets all that straight and he says, your faith has healed you. And there's something there. And so, and so, and and then he says, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. From your physical suffering, from your psychological suffering, even from the social, uh, being ostracized in society. And so, and so she has this call of belonging. But there's something that I think, like, I've missed definitely. So, so yeah, just imagine this, this scenario, right? Jesus is there. We are all milling around Jesus because you want to hear what he says. Someone, one of us comes, a woman reaches out and touches him. And then, and then somehow, like, no one knows the story. Like, the narrator is telling us all the backstory, So we kind of have this bird's eye view. But in that moment, no, no one knows the story. And so, and so when Jesus finds her and she's trembling with fear and she comes into his presence, he doesn't just say, your faith has healed you, be free. Just look into your Bibles. There's something that, that Mark 
highlights, he says, She came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. There was something that happened there. There was a time where she got to share her story. I think there's significance in that moment. It's that this woman got to speak her truth. She got to say, this is me. I am unclean because of my ailment. And then, and then Jesus in response says, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And so when, when we look at the story, what do we do? We can position ourselves somewhere in the story, right? And we, only have, we don't have all the time to position ourselves everywhere, but, but we can position ourselves with the woman. We can be that person who maybe is guarding a secret, something in our lives that we don't want anyone to hear because if anyone hears, they're going to judge us. They're going to keep us outside. They're going to look at us differently. What do our contexts look like? People, we live in South Africa. We definitely have a context here. And we need to understand that as Gracia shared a story, I mean, she's done all of that for us. There's, she sketched out her whole context within the history of South Africa. And I think as we, as we do that with each other, it's not the easiest thing to do, right? Because not, not so long ago, there was major divisions in our society. But what the gospel does is it creates a space for an alternate community. What Jesus does is he creates a space for people, I don't care where you come from, I don't care which side of the tracks you come from, but here in this community, you belong. You are loved. You are accepted. You don't need to hustle for your worthiness. You can be you. I don't need to be someone else. I don't need to be Steve. Big business owner. Um, amazingly, and, you know, I don't need to be Steve. I can, I can be me. I can be Brandon. The, the line picks up his water and it shakes. And, but my God has laid something there. You know, I can be me and I can say, this is me. And I can find acceptance in the family of God. And I just want to say to every single person who's here, like, I don't know how, I mean, we just started in our life groups, but what, there's a beautiful moment. You can give your story as a biographical sketch, right? We can all do that. You know, it's like a CV. It can sound great, right? I did this, and then I went to study, and then I got this job, and then I got this job, and then, like, amazing. But then there are those moments where, actually, I'm struggling with this. And this is part of my story right now. And, and here's the thing. I'm not saying that we must let it all hang out. You know? I'm not saying that. Because that, I don't think, will help. But as you journey with people in your life group, and people earn the right because they've walked a road with you, they've earned the right to 
Yeah, to, to hear your story. In relationship, Grace mentioned it, relationship makes the difference. Maybe, maybe the light group meets, but sometime in the week you arrange a coffee with someone. And it doesn't have to be the life group leader that arranges coffees, you know. But I mean, someone can say, don't you just want to go and have a coffee and let's chat. And if that's your person or people, you can share your story. The words of Jesus rings true. Be freed, go in peace, live a wholesome life. And that's what we need. We need in today's day and age that drives us support and drives us into... Like, you know, individualism, we need to be surrounded by community. And what I'd like to do now is to end and say that there's also a perspective where we can take the position of Jesus Christ. And we can take time to listen. We can be that friend who goes for that coffee and just sits there and holds the space. No judgment. Silence has been shattered. Yeah, there's no secrecy because now you've shared. We can show the tenderness of Christ. Extend the invitation of belonging. And so as we, as we come to the end, I mean, that's the challenge. It takes bravery. It takes vulnerability to share our stories. But once we do, and it's met with empathy, it's a game changer. It can change your life. Literally, it can be that inflection point that writes the end of your story that is different. And I want to ask us, you know, as, as community, in the life groups, in those coffee meetings, um, yeah, let's, let's look at the example of Jesus Christ and just reach out to each other and, and just meet each other. We need to be intentional because... This is also part of our history, right? And so we need to be very intentional about saying, I will push through this. I will get there. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this series. Thank you for this moment that we as a church get to wrestle with this reality that we are not just members who are on a roll somewhere or visitors who get ticked off a box, but we are real people. We show up with everything that we are in our authenticity i pray that we meet each other i pray that your holy spirit leads us and guides us and in the timeless example of jesus christ may we reach to the margins and draw close into our community those who need to hear that they are loved and that they belong and that they are worthy in jesus name amen